1: On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Josh Adler, a serial entrepreneur and founder of Convertix. Convertix offers help to startups in four ways, through strategic support, help in raising capital, product development, and launch strategy. Josh comes from a family of successful entrepreneurs in Canada. He started out as young as 11 in accounting and then worked his way through various aspects of business which has given him unique insights into how to build and run a company. He attended the University of Toronto for a business and MIT, where he earned a certificate in cybersecurity. He has launched several other businesses, including OpenAdvisor, a support network to help startups globally, and in particular, in developing countries. In our talk, Josh shares insights into the ways in which Dubai, where he now lives, contributes to a flourishing culture of entrepreneurship, the government offers financial f- support for people who, are, who can go work for the government or actually go launch a startup. When COVID hit, providing free regular testing along with tight restrictions around people who tested positive helped the area, which relies heavily on tourism, to stay resilient. Now, let's get better together. Josh Adler, welcome to the podcast. Awesome, Jari. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. You are uh, coming to us live from Dubai. I think you may, be, may or may not be the longest distance one. I'm in San Francisco, as everyone knows. I think I interviewed – the only other one that was that far away was probably Libya. I interviewed someone that was actually – I think they were still in Libya. It was fascinating. that This part of the world fascinates me because, again, we were talking a little bit before we hit record about – just like the dynamics of it are just beyond comprehensive. So uh, love to talk a little bit more about that. But you you are the founder of Convertex, um, which is how to unleash the true potential of entrepreneurs, which, of course, is something that I am very, very fond of. That show is you know, about entrepreneurship. Um, and I would love to talk about that and your experience in Dubai and how what you're doing over there at, at Convertex. But uh, before we get started on all of that, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. For sure. And thanks for having me. It's a pleasure
2: speaking with you as well. And uh, I mean, at the end of the day, when when anybody starts their career, uh, everybody has an amazing opportunity to either impact or not impact society, I guess you could almost say. Um, and. One big thing that I always looked at is, at the end of the day, the biggest affecting market on the economy or society as a whole um, is the concept itself of, I guess you could say, creating jobs. It That changes the way that the entire economy flows, the entire way society flows, and the entire morale and even happiness of society. And I think coming from that perspective as well as, well as coming from a perspective of past founders and family of founders and family of entrepreneurs, it's... Uh, I recognize that uh, there's an amazing opportunity in the current market to not only help founders but perpetuate the growth and the creation of startups itself. And I guess really that's where Convertix was born just about four years ago, was on that exact mentality. And um, in the same way we kept pulling on the thread and recognizing where founders need and see the most support. And we realized that by following kind of our very unique process, we've seen a tremendous amount of success. Um, particularly in the SaaS spaces, it's ultimately a very, very scalable vehicle.
1: Yeah. No, I was uh, taking a look at some of the stuff you're doing. It's really interesting. I was, as most people know, I was at 500 startups and Launchpad Digital Health, which were both accelerator type programs. And although I loved both of them, my critique of them was that the curriculum, which I'll use loosely because there really was none. There was none. (laughs) And as you mentioned, you know, some of this stuff is formulatic. Some of this stuff is, you know, hey, this is the way we do it. But I've always been fascinated by those folks that are trying to put systems around the art and craft of entrepreneurship because everyone thinks this is some free-flowing, free-to-be-you-and-me, bunch of geniuses in a room. And I'm like, it's not that. The most important, I mean, right. The most important, no, thing about, no, right, right? most important thing about being an entrepreneur is that what I like to call the blue collar work ethic, like, like yeah. grind it out. The
2: endless grind, the endless hustle. Even if you don't see results, still pushing and pushing until you get to a point where it's just like your knuckles are bloody <laughs> and hopefully you then see some results.
1: Yeah. And and sometimes you see results and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you pivot and sometimes you don't. But I think the thing that's fascinating about what you're doing and kind of what I've tried to do with what I write about and talk about on the show is this entrepreneur gig is for anyone given the right mentorship and the right information and the kind of demystifying the stigma of the genius founder, like the ones that we all know about the Zucks and the Blas and the Blas and the Blas where no, like the entire world, no matter where you are, has got some flavor of entrepreneurship. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what was it that really puts you into doing this type of work? Um, you know, your family is, as you mentioned before we talked, you know, they're into renewable energy like they you know you, you you probably had the opportunity i think you also i think you do work a little bit with that as well but it's just like a what, what 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 was it what was the spark
2: for sure and i mean it's a really interesting question i don't get that often and i don't even talk about it much but uh, to give you a little bit of brief so i come from a family office background that was heavily situated in the sense of everything from uh commercial infrastructure all the way to the medical industry all the way to manufacturing and uh, as well as over the past 25 years also the energy industry. so quite widespread and quite uh, quite agnostic if you get what I'm trying to say and um, while I was kind of and we've even had companies funny enough even in the water sector and the technical sector and uh, I started working for my family office roughly about 11 11 and a half years old. I know it sounds crazy to most individuals. But I started very, very early in my career um, and actually started in the accounting department. Absolutely hated it. But as my career grew, I went from kind of working from accounting all the way to working in management, working in tech, working in software, um, working in cybersecurity, working in managed IT services, working in water, and trying all these different types of industries. And whether it was working in the corporate development department or whether it was working in a financial department or Uh, an accounting department, or really any kind of variance, um, or even working on a managerial and growth level, um, recognizing what it takes to really grow a business. And in in my career, I've seen companies go all the way from being an idea to going public or being acquired. Um, So it's coming from the kind of family I do and coming from the kind of background I do, um, being that I've seen kind of the the ideation all the way to, I guess you could call the end game. Which is IPO or acquisition for most founders, and being that I've had experience in all that kind of stuff. For God's sakes, I've I, I've even experienced, uh, I guess you could call it an autonomous drone company that that films sports games that I worked for for quite some time as well, um, and helped build the engineering components and worked with three D printing and drones and all that kind of fun stuff. So I've been in everything under the sun um, from a very early age. And I guess it's allowed an incredible opportunity to position me with the understanding of uh, not only because I've launched my own startups before, but um, Convertex is my sixth company I've actually launched um, in my career. But it's it's allowed me to get a very, very strong glimpse of kind of the process that's involved to get a founder from ideation to launch or even IPO acquisition or merger. Right, And that's kind of something that's very, very rare in most individuals' careers that has allowed me to help create hundreds of startups. Um, in the past year alone, we created well over 100, just to give you a feel. Um, I think there's actually an article going out on that in the next few days. But it, it's just amazing to feel and amazing to experience, amazing to see all the lessons that you learn and all that amazing stuff.
1: Wow, 100 it's amazing.
2: Just slightly over, but yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's just funny because just because you know, I think we talked about this a little bit before we hit record. You know, I truly believe that the world's a better place because entrepreneurs make it a better place. I I, I can't think of one thing well other than maybe war and pestilence that moves moves the world forward or backward, depending on how you look at it more than the art and craft of creating something from nothing. Like, you know, we're the entrepreneurs or we're the creatives of the business world. We take the risk, we, you know, we figured out. And it's funny because when you talk to people who don't have that attitude, you know, they get pretty upset, <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, I don't have my whatever. Um, and it's fascinating that since the age of 11, you've been sort of in this soup, right? Like, yeah. Most people say, yeah, well, at the age of 10, I had a lemonade stand. And you're like, well, you know, at the age of 11, I was working in accounting. <laughs> a little bit <laughs> different. Slightly. Slightly. Well, it's just, yeah. it's like the milieu you're in, right? Like, it's funny because a lot of people don't think they can do this job or, you know, career, vocation or passion or, you know, calling or whatever. But, you know, what you're trying to do is make that a little more doable. So, what have you found has been sort of the biggest kind of barriers for people to want to give it a try or like, you know, when when you're you've got a bunch of education, you know, and programs and services. But like what have you found has been like the major barriers for people to give it a try?
2: Yeah. And I mean. When it comes to barriers, it's, it's a challenging question because I feel that when you have founders and we have founders that come from very, very large variants of blocks of life you have, I normally categorize it to four different kinds of, uh, groups, right? You have your, your technical, but not business wise founders with full discretion, right? So you have people that are heavily technical engineering background, but no business sense whatsoever. Um, And they just don't know how to capitalize on a product or create a product that's effective, which we support them, teach them, and walk them through that whole process, and also level them up, as I call it. Then you kind of have your second tranche, which is business, but not technical. So the exact inverse. Then you have your individuals that have a specialization in one industry that they want to carry over to a new industry, but don't understand fully that new industry, but understand that there's market there. Um, and then once again, you have the inverse of exactly that. Understand the industry, but want to pull in a new piece, but don't understand that industry that they're trying to pull in. Um, it's very, very rare that you have your technical and business minded founders. That's why normally I don't put a group to them because I call them outliers, whether it's good or a bad thing. I always say that being a multi-tool is, is not always the best thing, although most people know the quote is, I think it's being a jack of all trades is a jack of one, or it's better than being a jack of one. but. Uh, being master of many is better still, um, or being a jack of many is still better. So, I mean, how I see it fundamentally from my perspective is there's no real exact barrier that I consistently see. It, being that we've worked with hundreds of founders at this point, I would say the most common one or the median is probably the struggle when it comes to uh, effectively raising cash and being that most people haven't experienced something like that in their life. And I would call that earning your stripes, from my perspective. Um, Raising cash is really the deterrent for most founders, especially in the SaaS space, being that you really do need runway. It's not like your brick and mortar, your lemonade stand, like you were mentioning, where you put up a few sticks and a sign, and uh, your parents give you a couple of bucks to go to Home Depot, and you're good to go. Um, It's slightly different in that regard. and Some individuals try to self-finance it or fund it or the like, and it still is quite challenging. Um, but that's kind of been the biggest barrier that I've seen probably the most common regardless of technicality or, or not.
1: Yeah. I've, I've seen that too. Most people freak out about the, the fundraising, you know, cause it's a lot. I mean, it's hard to get, to convince someone to give you money. Correct.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's one big thing that uh, I guess. Uh, we focused on over the past few years since kind of origination of ConvertX. ConvertX is partnered with some of the largest venture capital firms on this planet, from the likes of Sequoia to Samsung Next to uh, probably some of the biggest names that you've ever heard um, when it comes to kind of the whole kind of startup financing space itself. And um, this is something that I've always kind of had a big focus on is kind of how can we support startups on the finance side and it's something that's not easy to be very, very honest with you. It's, it's really, really quite challenging, whether it's going to an Excel Ventures or a Bismar Ventures or Terra VC and trying to ask for money. It's, we find that introductions make a world of difference to the success of a founder on raising cash that it just you traditionally won't see the same level of success if you were to just reach out with a cold email or cold outreach. Um, and that's kind of our way of kind of somewhat solving the problem, but some level of traction or POC or MVP is still needed for them to even consider the conversation, which is still challenging for founders to angel finance or family and friends finance, or you can get to that point a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially like SaaS is a great example. You know, you say you guys focus on SaaS. I don't think anyone will take a meeting with you unless you have an MVP of some SaaS product that you've self-funded.
2: It. it, it you are right to a point, but at the same time, too, and I always play devil's advocate.
1: <laughs> Let's do it.
2: Always. Um, but it's, you are right to a point. But one thing I have seen over the years um, is if you're in a situation where you come from a strong background, where either you worked for an EY, you worked for a McKenzie, you worked uh, one of these amazing consulting firms, or you have a really, really strong level of credentials, or you went to a top tier Ivy League school, uh, it doesn't really carry relevance, interestingly enough. Or the inverse as well that I've also seen is if you have no product, a poc in traction, really like not a not a consumer ready poc, but just simple poc, but you have a, a tremendous amount, almost like a, I think it was called cl- Club Hub, I think if my memory is right, um, quite some time ago, where they had a massive pre sign up list before even the product came out. Um, having that, you can raise a tremendous amount of cash just because you're saying, well. The minute we fund the product and get it out there, we have people waiting for us, um, and that's another way that I've seen founders kind of
1: navigate, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that I think I think that's Clubhouse is the one you refer to. Clubhouse, Clubhouse, yeah. which which went like you can't see it on the on the on the audio went up and then went. Down. <laughs> but no, you're right. Like that that sort of hype cycle, kind of like oh we think this is a great idea. Look at all these people that also think it's a great idea. We just need to cash to build it. Let's go. That's fascinating. So fascinating. So it's wild to see. I know. And, it, and what's, what's even more wild is sort of the boom and bust cycle of, of venture. Like right now we're sort of in a bust cycle due to all the crypto chaos. Um, how, how, do you, how do you help people navigate that? I mean, it's clearly harder to raise capital now. Probably going to be hard to raise capital for a while, just given the market dynamics. That's really, I think, the true test, in my opinion, of the grit and determination. Is in tough times, how do you handle that? Is there is there any advice that you give people, or how do you how do you sort of frame the the zigs and the the you know the zigs and zags are going to happen? What's sort of the framework that you guys use to help people navigate that?
2: Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's an interesting question that a lot of founders will ask me. They'll say, based on the market conditions, everyone thinks that we're in a recession right now, which uh, I, I don't fully agree with. And I think at the same time, too, regardless of that, it's the best time to launch a startup. Some of the biggest success stories came out of recessions, or uh, even if you want to call it one, I, I don't think the unemployment rate is high enough to be considered kind of that market trend quite yet, or I don't think it will be. Um, especially showing kind of how the market's responding to um, kind of already the initial news that's coming coming out of the Federal Reserve and kind of their reviews and all that kind of fun stuff. Which there's supposed to be another one before the end of the year, but it's with kind of all that being said, um, how I kind of see it. And I've done a lot of diligence. Being the position I am in, you have to be aware of these kind of things and understand them at its core. And PitchBook actually released a full study that VC investment has gone down. correct, VC and institutional. But if you look at the perspective of accredited investors, there has been a, I think, 50% uptick on the basis of accredited slash angel investors investing in startups compared to before. So you've seen a decrease but I think it's like 43% on the VC front, but you've seen just over 40% increase um, on the accredited slash angel investor front. in theory, it's kind of made up for it. The only difference is if you're the likes of an Airbnb, you're the likes of an Apple, you're the likes of one of these relatively large companies, you're not going to see financing over the next period. But conversely, startup founders right now are raising money left and right. So to say that there's a struggle in the market right now, I would say is actually the inverse, hmm. crazy enough.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you, I, I, it's a very good point that it seems that later stage is harder because it's later stage and the VCs are doing later stage. But to your point about the the time to build is in bad times. I know Intel used to say that all the time. Anytime there was a recession, Intel would build a new foundry. They're like, we're investing because when it turns back on, that's where you make a substantial amount of gains, right? So interesting. So you're seeing more of a more early stage credited investment, I'm assuming that seed stage, like just idea generation stage. Pre, pre-seed seed. Pre-seed. pre-seed seed. Okay. So okay.
2: It's, we get an insight on acquisitions, of course, of all of our startups, on investments, everything. This is one of our terms with every single one of our founders that they have to advise us anytime this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing a substantial increase, like kind of scary increase compared to what it was COVID era. Mm-hmm. Um people weren't writing anywhere near as many checks compared to during COVID where there is in theory more liquidity. Yeah. Um, I mean, 40% of all the money was printed in the past year. (laughs) Right. If you think about it from that perspective,
1: it's like, Whoa, it's insane. I know it's insane. It's just insanity. It's nuts. This is the power of compounding and the power of just like, yeah. Exponential. (laughs) It's it's wild. The one, the one thing, every young folk, every young person needs to know is the power of compounding and exponential increases. So, wow. Interesting. That's a really good insight. Cause you know, I'm in again, in Silicon Valley, the news is doom and gloom. Later stage companies aren't getting funding layoffs. You just hear the layoff, the constant tick of layoffs. A couple of my buddies got laid off a couple of weeks ago, it just seems more doom and gloom. But to your point, I guess those that have the money that invest early are like, well, this is the time, probably get good deals too. Even even later stage right. deals are probably better. Yeah,
2: And devalued. And I think one thing that you also have to recognize, and I mean, we have startups in North America, uh, all across Europe, all across uh, Asia, all across MENA. Um, but regardless, it, it's one thing that people also don't recognize. And this is very, very interesting is just because North America is taking a financial hit, doesn't mean all the markets are too, in most cases. That's not always the truth. And I mean, 2008 was slightly different being that, I mean, being in Dubai, uh, the UAE had a lot of investments in North America when 2008 happened. But since then, they kind of changed their entire thesis of how they invest in North America. Um, So it's here, we're not feeling it at all, full discretion. There's no inflation, I mean, not really any inflation, things aren't going up in price, everything's staying the same. There's no homelessness. I mean, there never was. Um, but (laughs) unemployment rates haven't gone up If anything. They've actually gone down in the region. Um, everything's basically the same. If you ask me, is there a recession going on in the region? I would say probably the inverse and investors are still writing the same checks as they always have. Um, maybe it's a thing of Dubai in the middle East and the MENA region itself, or just slightly different in that regard. But, um, like I mentioned, kind of before the recording started, um, it almost sometimes feels like this part of the region, part of the world is sitting on a different planet. If that makes sense. As a whole. Yeah, no, it does. Um, we were how, talking about
1: that line city and how cool that was. You know, yeah,
2: yeah. It's, uh, it's just kind of separated from reality sometimes, but to their benefit, I guess you could almost say.
1: It almost seems decoupled other than with... Petrol, like with oil, you know, oil reserves and everything. But I know a lot of the countries in that region are trying to kind of pull away from that because the volatility, you know.
2: I mean, it's it's always been seen. Most people don't know this, but we've pumped the same oil since when the Americans uh, left Saudi till now. We pumped the exact same amount of oil out every single year and produced the exact same amount. Really cool fact. Um, since the beginning of time of basically pumping oil. And since you guys are Americans, used to own Aramco, right? Um, So it's uh, basically with that being said, oil production has never gone up. It's always maintained the same. Um, But in regions like the GCC, um, oil prices or gas, I probably pay one fourth of what you pay here, just in the region. It's crazy, crazy cheap. Like I remember I used to pay like a hundred bucks Canadian like 80 bucks US to fill up uh, my, my car in Canada. Here I pay like 25, 30 bucks.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's
2: very, uh, it's it's crazy to think. Crazy, crazy to think.
1: Yeah. And and it's interesting. There's, you really don't see any recession there. Is it, or inflation because, you know, typical, I mean, here inflation's out, of, quote unquote, out of control, hasn't been this high since the 70s, which mm-hmm. was, was was pretty high 70s and 80s. So. I'm just, I'm curious why that is because I guess maybe, well, I don't know, there must be some decoupling that I just, we just don't see here in North America. So I, I think there's a few different facets. So the first
2: would be obviously kind of, we don't lean on NASDAQ, the stock market in the US. We have our own version of NASDAQ Dubai. I don't know if you knew about this. I mean, called NASDAQ Dubai, which is the subsidiary of actually NASDAQ and UAE, um, same ownership. Um, but it's separated, different listing. We also have uh, DFA, uh, Dubai Financial Authority, um, which is our own version of our stock market here as well, um, which has seen total stability as of late, um, relative stability compared to the rest of the market. Um, And then with that also being said, what we rely on in this region, and this is Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and the rest of the Emirates, is for stability is not the same as North America. Tourism is a big thing here really 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 big thing here um and with all the events going on in the world right now tourism is at all-time high plus you have fifa plus you have f1 you have all these crazy events that this society prospers off tourism it's not like uh silicon valley where most people don't really come there just to go sightseeing it's not a it's not a normal (laughs) it's not a normal thing where it's like oh check out apple headquarters and go for a week of sightseeing off to microsoft next it, it's it's not as normal, right? Um, so I guess kind of that's the perspective that allows for kind of a consistent flow. And as, like you mentioned, over time, they've really um, kind of uncoupled even away from oil quite a bit, where it's a much larger reliance on tourism and they've kind of stretched out and really become less reliant on, everyone thinks you stick a strong ground, you have oil, but really it's you stick a strong ground, you have tourism. <laughs> Um, which is quite interesting here.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that was impacted by COVID to a certain degree. But I mean, is most of the tourism just in the region? Because I know we we talked a little bit about how the COVID restrictions in Dubai were a lot less than, say, Canada, as an example. Um, I'm just curious, like tour, well, like the tourism here in California dried up with COVID due to the restrictions and everything, and just interesting. I, the reason why I bring this up is I'm always fascinated by how different cultures and different communities handle different crises, right? It's like a, It's just like this multivariant experiment that's going on all the time and should learn from it. Like, you know, maybe you did something wrong this time. Do something different, you know? Like the whole, you know, the Swedish example was one that gets touted a lot where they just they didn't shut down. They restricted some things, but they didn't want to crater the economy and it turns out that was probably the right idea. So what were some of the things they were doing or are still doing there in Dubai?
2: I mean, what they did from the onset, and this was quite interesting. When I flew down um, in the early onset, I was vaccinated roughly within a few days, if that makes sense. Um, just to give you a feel, even as at the time a tourist, right? Um, I asked for it and it was provided and not only that, it was free of cost. Um, so. Their mentality here, which is very uniquely different, is we will pay the price, whatever it is, because the price of lack of tourism is much higher, if that makes sense. So they looked at it from the perspective of, yeah, okay, well, it's a risk. We're going to be pulling a bunch of money out of our pocket. And if it never recovers, that's going to really suck. But um, if we can get the COVID rates low enough, then we're better for it, Um, which they saw as quite a big advantage. So they really kind of pumped the vaccine they put us in about a week of lockdown total. That was the entire lockdown in its entirety. And then outside of that, gyms were open, movie theaters were open. It was just kind of, um, I guess we can call it social distancing more or less. That's really kind of it. And every 30 days you were getting a PCR test or every every 14 days, actually. Every 14 days you were getting a PCR test. Um, so they really controlled it and they had a, a digitalized vaccine passport that would hold your last PCR test so it can't be faked. Um, and people just followed the rules and that was literally it. And they kept it probably one of the lowest out of all countries out there. Um, and it was like, as normal, there was, uh, I don't think I, the minute I arrived here, it didn't feel like COVID existed anymore, to be very honest with you, like at all. <laughs> so wow, that was one of the amazing aspects uh, that still brought tourism.
1: Wow. So, huh. They went the whole route of, well, no. So, cause see the testing route, see, this is the thing I could never understand the way we did it here. Um, And I think, again, these are all the lessons, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, but I never understood why we didn't ramp up testing. Because if you want to like isolate and test people, like, Hey, you test positive, handle the protocol, good to go. Right. I mean, the only thing, the only testing that we did was monitoring the sewage system to see where outbreaks were consistently and i remember reading the study on this and i'm just like this is so fascinating like they're they're gonna know but then it's like why don't you just go test like but because people how are we going to pay for it or whatever but to your point the cost of shutting down was way more expensive than the cost of testing every 14 days wow they tested you every 14 days wow Every 14. And not only
2: that, I tested positive for COVID and I got an ankle bracelet for about, yeah, yeah, this is how they did in the region for 10 days where I couldn't leave a 40 meter by 40 meter square, which is still quite large, but it was, yeah. So that's the kind of policy that they had. You test positive, uh, you get an x ray paid by the government, full checkup paid by the government, and they throw an ankle bracelet on you and you get escorted home in a government car. Um, And that was it. And that's, they just went so strict where they said, like, We're not going to mess around if you're positive. You are going to get tested consistently. But in the same way in this region where they push so hard with all these different initiatives, and like even when it comes to kind of startups, the government, what they did here, which is kind of crazy to think, is they said to any Emirati local, which is a local that was born in the UAE that brought up with generations of family in the Middle East or the UAE itself, if you quit your nine to five government job, we will provide you a year of paid salary of the equivalent amount that you made if you launch a startup, what other country does this?
1: Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) The answer is none (laughs)
2: that I can think of. It's wild to think. And it's, it just goes to show kind of how the environment of this country is and how hard they're pushing, um, towards kind of creating more and producing more in startups and kind of that whole mentality and, uh, I've become a strong believer that the next Silicon Valley with no hate, I'm sorry, is Dubai, right? Um, Just because the amount of government investment is just so much.
1: It's like where the money goes, the startups will go. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why Silicon Valley happened, I mean, if you read the lore back in the 50s and 60s, right? You know, you had Stanford, Cal, right? Great institutions, Um, but there was just a lot of, kind of money around, but money around to like, how are we going to make more money? Right. And, you know, Sand Hill road came about because everyone, I mean, nice place to live. Weather's great. Close to Stanford and Berkeley. Let's, let's go, you know, and, but the whole idea of venture capital when they invented it was, was very new because companies really didn't start that way. You know, you were bootstrapped, you got a loan. It was not a lot of innovation But as things started to be like, oh, well, maybe there's something here to, you know, you had to, because it was such a long-term thing. Like it took time to develop technology. So, and I I butchered the history of it, but (laughs) it's just fun to, (laughs) it's just fun. You know, when I was raising money for companies, like going to Sand Hill Road, walking into like you know, the place like, Oh, this is Kleiner Perkins. Holy. Oh my gosh. I'm going to pitch in Kleiner Perkins. Crazy. <laughs> this is insane. Yeah, yeah. This is like the insanity is at another level. Like, and they offered me a bottle of water. Should I just take it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm going to label it, take a photo, put it on the wall. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it, it, it's, a, it's the lore of it. Right. Yeah
2: it's it's the peak right and i know the feeling i mean it was the same when i guess i was first speaking with sequoia and kind of having that conversation it's like softbank and sequoia are peak basically from my perspective it's pretty much up there right um it's every probably consumer brand that you could imagine that's probably gotten big enough in most cases is backed by one of the two right um and it's crazy to think um kind of all of that but it's uh, I, I guess it's it's kind of just how the market's gone. And uh, Have you ever read the book Sandhill Road? I don't know if you ever have, have you?
1: I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever read it. That's actually, I should... Or The Secrets the- of Sand
2: Hill Road. My bad, sorry. Secrets yeah. of Sandhill Road.
1: Put that on the list.
2: Definitely check it out. Um, I know you're an author, so maybe I'll give me some inspiration, but uh, uh, I have to check out your book. But, uh, oh, yeah. Thank definitely. You. For sure. I mean, it's... Uh, I read a lot, um, so it's... Uh, throw it on my list. i probably finish probably two books a week.
1: One of those oh. kind of people. Are there, are there any kind of books yeah. you'd recommend for entrepreneurs? I mean, I look, just again, looking through all what you've done and the services and programs and what you've invested in and your partnerships and like, you know, over a hundred companies this year, are there, are there like seminal books that you're like, this is the, on the entrepreneur reading list? Cause it's funny because if you were like United States Marine um, officer, there would be a list of books that the commandant of the Marine Corps says thou shalt read. (laughs) And I'm wondering, do you have a list? Do you keep a list? I mean, what's sort of your thoughts on that?
2: I do. So I keep four books. (laughs) It's not one, it's four. And it's like, if you don't read these, uh, no offense, you can't become an entrepreneur. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen people do without it, but I think these are core books that are almost treated like the Bible. So you have the lean startup, which I think everybody's heard of, right? That's like a common sense book. Um, you have Titanic Effect. You've checked that one out. Another amazing, amazing, amazing book. Um, following that, you have the hundred dollar startup, um, which another amazing, amazing book. And then, of course, Secrets of Sandhill Road, which for me is like the benchmark of finance in the startup kind of financing or fundraising world. It's these four to me kind of cover all different four elements of a startup, whether it's being a lean startup, whether it's utilizing funds effectively whether it's avoiding big mistakes or whether it's raising cash. And to me, those are kind of the four biggest pillars
1: when it comes to the whole startup world. Wow. I've heard of two of those. So cool. I will definitely Titanic. better than most. Well, Titanic effect and secrets of sand Hill road. I'll definitely put those on my list. One of the um, other ones I always recommend is the innovators dilemma and then the Innovator's solution, which, you know, know, Mostly for big big company, but Clay Christensen's sort of made the rounds as the innovative type folk. You know, everyone would follow him. Great, great guy. Um, there was another one called uh, uh, Loon Shots, which that I read. Yeah, I read. which is which is which is a fantastic one as well. I think it's just interesting because you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't have time to read. I don't have time to, and you're like, you have, no, you cannot afford not to read and understand like reason why we do the show is so don't, don't make the same mistakes we made. Right. Yeah. It's when I first started off, I uh, beat full discretion. I, I,
2: to be honest, I hate, I, I hated reading. Um, like I absolutely hated it. And I think it's like anything, it's like playing the piano. The more you play it, the less your fingers are going to hurt, the more you're going to enjoy it. I mean, in the past two days or four days, actually, just to give you a feel, I probably read 500 pages of internal corporate docs, right? So it's Harry Potter book without the dragons. <laughs> um, but it, it goes to show um, uh, just from, from an overall perspective, kind of once you start getting used to it, it's just, it's not really that challenging anymore. And I did that all along because so I'd still followed my regular reading schedule of two books a week. So it's, which I don't count as really reading at this point because it's just, it's like one of the gym for most people, they don't talk about it anymore. Um, So uh, I think from my perspective, if if you're not learning from other people's mistakes, then you're going to continuously make the same mistakes as other people. And even if sometimes it's not learning from mistakes, but it's learning how to, and and this is my biggest focus is how to optimize, Mm. how to get the most out of each individual minute that you have. And Mm the biggest reason why I love reading that most people I don't think comprehend is because when you read time slows down and I, and some people say, Oh, cause you're focused or whatever. But in four hours, if you're actually focused and you're actually getting stuff done and you're actually reading and covering a book and I'm one of the people that rips out the pages and nuts and highlights and staples, that's how I read. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, I find that you get so much more out of a day because it slows down your day so much throughout that period of time that you end up kind of getting more done that day, even outside of the book. And I've treated it as almost like an efficiency gain, where almost those four hours are excluded from the day, almost like I now have what 20, 29 hours the day. Um, and that's kind of how I see it. Quite interesting.
1: Yeah. No, I mean I I, I share the same. Philosophy. I don't read as much as two two books a week, but I've always found that the reading, like synthesizing information, putting it away for 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 another day, like it it allows you to see the overlap in things. So, like, so I try to read also a wide variety of things that are not necessarily like what I'm interested in or I'm interested, but that's adjacent to what I do. Like one of the things I've been reading about is, um, these things called earthships, how to build an earthship, right? Basically a self-sufficient mm-hmm. living thing completely out of left field for what I normally do, but totally cool, but totally it's cool. Right. Ever. Yeah. Coolest thing yeah. ever. Exactly. Right. And so what's, what's, what's interesting is that that trait the curiosity, the learning, the like reps, I always think of it as reps. So like, like to give your, your workout analogy, the more reps you have, the more you read, the more you understand where people have come from the more situations that you can be exposed to when you're in your, that's situ- when you're in your, want some unique situation, like something you got to deal with, you can pull from that. And generally i found you navigate it better.
2: Correct. For sure. I mean, Folks like think like a monk, zero relevance to what I do on the daily, but changes your perspective or your perception of where you're in, because most people are locked into their nine to five or their daily um, kind of game that they follow um, or kind of rat race. Um, That's why I like to call it very uh, kind of blunt, but uh, the rat race that they follow every single day where it's the same kind of repetitive thing, but this, uh, the reading material that I normally kind of try to read and it could be totally irrelevant right? It could be inventions of the future. It could be algorithms to live by some amazing books, but yeah. have no relevance whatsoever to what I do on the day today. day. the same way that right. you're talking about earth ships. Um, and, but it, it gives you an entirely new perspective and new perception, almost like turning a diamond and looking at a different angle of light at a problem that maybe you're later dealing with.
1: Yeah. 100%. There's another book that I always recommend entrepreneurs read called the war of art by Stephen Pressfield, which is yeah. amazing book absolutely Amazing. a plus Amazing. like he wrote that 20 years ago <laughs> 2002 yeah. and just found it so fascinating that he just nailed resistance to the like oh he, the reason i just was top of mind he was on joe rogan's podcast i think it was this week when we're recording this this week so always a pleasure to to hear hear that stuff and real pleasure to talk with you this is so fascinating what you're doing the perspective for from out there in dubai and The journey is just one of those things where it's always fascinating to see where people end up, you know, and, and I love the fact that you're trying to help people be entrepreneurs, be successful, and sometimes you're not successful, but at least learning something and kind of growing. So thanks Josh for your time. Such a, such a wonderful conversation.
2: Well, it was a total pleasure. Um, and, uh, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks Josh for being on the show. A wonderful conversation about uh, lots of cool things and kind of neat to get a little bit of a glimpse on what it's like to live and work in Dubai. So thanks for that. As promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Josh. While Josh had the privilege of starting early by working for his family company, he stresses that ultimately it's about putting in the work and continue to do so until you see results. I mean, yeah, like Woody Allen said, what, 80% of life is just showing up? Well, you know, as an entrepreneur, showing up and doing the blue-collar work, as I always say, is really important. So, you know, you need to ask yourself questions like, am I putting enough time in? Am I doing the right things? Am I doing things that I can only do, right? And again, when you're first starting out, you may have to do everything, but consistency, and the blue-collar work ethic really do matter a lot, and it does make up a ton for privilege and all sorts of other things. So uh, while privilege is, of course, great if you can get it, you know, if you had a leg up on things, um, I still th- really believe Josh in that and you know, just got to put the work in. Though it might not seem like a great time to raise money for a business, Josh says it's actually a good time to do so, especially for startups in the early stages. There's a lot of investment to be had for founders in this stage. I mean, typically, yeah, early stage because it takes forever to get the return on. Um, even in sort of poor economic times, um, yeah, I, I mean, it goes back and forth. I know a lot of right now since we're sort of coming out of the pandemic and there's been a huge amount of financial crisis with inflation and everything in the war in Ukraine, among other things, Um follow on rounds, you know, series A, series B are getting pretty tight. But yeah, I mean, money's out there. I think the questions you really have to ask yourself when you're raising money, especially at the seed stage is, do I have enough traction? Have I done everything I can in telling my story? What's my pitch deck look like? Does it fully convey what I'm doing? Is there a growing market even in downtimes? There's always markets that grow in downtimes like You know, cybersecurity is a great one. Like, you always need cybersecurity, right? So, you know, harder to do, but I think if you just put the time in and you really have a good business that's worth funding, I think it's out there. Just going to be harder to do. While not previously an avid reader, Josh now reads two books a week, saying it's important to learn from others as much as possible. Below are the four books Josh recommends for all entrepreneurs, noting that these cover the important areas... That Entrepreneurs should focus on so the first book is the lean startup how today's entrepreneurs use continuous innovation to create radically successful businesses The titanic effect successfully navigating the uncertainties that sink most startups the hundred dollar startup reinvent the way you make a living do what you love and create a new future and secrets of sandhill road venture capital and how to get it so Everyone knows I love books, <laughs> love writing books, love reading books. Um, that's a pretty solid pretty solid list, and the links to all of this are in the show notes. Um, I do think it's important to learn from the past. And while not everything is relevant, and you may think, well, it's a different time, different things, um, you know, history rhymes, and I know for me, looking at the 2000-2001 downturn, living through that, the 2008 downturn, living through that, and now living through the 2022 downturn, uh, there was just a lot of themes that seemed to be um, showing up and popping up. And so reading books like this really are helpful. Um, So, you know, don't have to read everything, but it's important to sort of understand where people have come from, especially in the startup world. Again, these things, we we go in cycles, like right now it's a down cycle for a round, B round, C round. Okay, great. Now how do those companies grow, still grow? Well, you know, they have to have good businesses. They can't just be, you know, vaporware, um, you know, crypto right now is really struggling because everyone thought it was decentralized and independent of the economy. Well, it turns out there was fraud and all sorts of other things. So, you know, ask yourself the questions, you know, that are like, you know, what are my flat spots? Where do I need to learn new things? Has there been something that's adjacent in the past? Again, not not everything is applicable, but boy, a lot of some of the four books we just mentioned and a lot of some of other ones that talk about the past, even history books, um, really do shed a light and let you at least get ahead of the game. So there you have it the actionable insights from my awesome interview with Josh. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you until next time keep getting better